Welcome to the Realtors Land Institute podcast, the voices of land, the industry's leading land real estate organization. Hello, this is Justin Osborne, accredited land consultant with the Wells Group Real Estate Brokerage. Today's podcast, we're going to have with us Casey Conway, MAI, CRE, and CCIM's chief economist. Casey has more than 30 years of experience in commercial real estate. Conway is a nationally recognized expert and speaker on a wide range of topics ranging from appraisals and bank regulations to ports and securitization. His areas of specialty include housing, industrial, litigation support, industrial and office real estate, North American ports, and land development. Before we get started, I also wanted to mention to our listeners that both CCIM and RLI are commercial affiliates of the National Association of Realtors. And as such, they work closely together to partner in elevating the level of expertise in the commercial real estate industry. As part of their partnership efforts, if you hold the accredited land consultant designation, you now qualify for the fast track to earning the CCIM designation. Also, if you are a CCIM, you qualify for the fast track to the ALC. With that said, welcome to the show, Casey. Let's get started. I'm looking forward to hearing your insights on the economic impact of the coronavirus outbreak and subsequent lockdown on the land market. Yeah, great great to be joining with you, uh, Justin. Uh, glad to be here and share some thoughts. Well, Casey, I'm just kind of curious what concerns you have related to the land and agricultural industries right now. So I think one of the one of the macro ones that we're all trying to figure out is, you know, we're we're open, reopening states and we know vi- virus out, you know, virus cases and outbreaks are still continuing to rise. We're uh, you know, we have three times the number of anywhere else uh, in the world. Um, they're, they're rising in every state, but probably except Hawaii. Hawaii's the only one that seems to have completely gotten it flattened out. And so, you know, what's going on between reopening and when we still don't have adequate testing and a vaccine and really what each state in community and industry is wrestling with was is really a risk analysis, balancing out the public health risks with the economic uh, kind of damage risks. We don't have an endless pot of money. We can't have everybody stay at home forever. We need to grow crops. We need to uh, get our supply chain working and people have to deliver all that. Not all of us can function uh, very well just living at Zoom and, and hoping nobody else is doing anything in the background. So I think the first thing is everybody recognize that the virus isn't going away tomorrow. Uh, We don't have all the testing that we need yet. We don't have a vaccine. So we're making a calculated decision to go back to work because we don't have, um, you know, an endless pot of money to stay sheltered at home. So it's it's a weighing of the risk. And there's no right or wrong answer. Each state and community and industry has to uh, evaluate that um, among themselves. So that that's the first thing. And I think the second one is when you look at these economic numbers, no matter what industry, and they have to really be startling. Uh, the the April jobs report released at the beginning of May showed that the real unemployment rate was over 22 percent. Just think of that. Almost one in four of our Americans are out of work. And when we look at who's most affected and out of work, it's really that frontline um, workforce. It's not just nursing and healthcare, but it's the entire supply chain from growing and harvesting and processing the food to delivering it. 
And so that's the workforce, most of the front line and most impacted by not having a vaccine and, and protection. So how we're going to make all of that work and how it plays out here, I think um, we, we have some discovery to go. What type of measurable impact would you say this is going to have on land values? I mean, whether it's residential development, farmland, ag land, transitional land, recreational land, you know, we've got all these different segments. And I'm just curious as to kind of what you're going to see as a measurable impact uh, with all this. Yeah, great, great uh, question. Let's start with the easy and the optimistic recreational land. As uh, as more of us flee the high density urban environments and want to get to the suburbs and whatnot, we actually are seeing pretty decent demand recreational and rural land. Um, uh, you know, folks that you know have some some savings and have some net worth, and maybe you're done with the city or proximity to the city. They know with Zoom and all the technologies that we um, have, have become very comfortable with in the last 90 days, that they really can live and work anywhere. And psychologically, they're they may be making more of that leap to, you know, instead of just something for recreational hunting or a lake, it may become. Um, you know, more the permanent residents. So the recreation stuff is holding up and more of that buyer tends to use less leverage, have cash, have a higher net worth. That's the good news. On the housing front, this one, we're getting some clues from the public home builders. So the public home builders like Pulte have said, man, we're gonna go immediately to our 2009, 2010 housing playbook. We're gonna quit buying land. We're not gonna as aggressively take down lot positions in our lot takedown agreements and uh, we're gonna we're gonna draw down our bank lines we're gonna hoard cash and uh, we're, we're ready for 2009 and 10 all over but on the other end dr horton says wait a minute don't panic so much we're actually seeing pretty good buyer traffic it's more the entry level and it's all in the suburbs so on the land side i think we are going to see some impact from housing we're seeing um we still have just first mainly first quarter influence data on sales, uh, which were largely put under contract in February or March. But the leading indicator I'm tracking is what's happening to listings and the number of days a, a house is on the market. And those are deteriorating pretty rapidly. Um, Realtor.com has a new weekly report. For those of you that have land influenced by housing, it's excellent. And it looks at those forward leading indicators. Danielle Hale is the economist that's putting that together. They started that two weeks ago. The other one on housing that I think is going to be something that's not going to play out and us understand until another year, and that is the number of loans in forbearance. So typically, we've, we've never had even a 1% uh, ratio of home total home mortgages in um, forbearance. It was only a quarter of a percent uh, going into the COVID-19 outbreak. It just reached a record 8%. And so what that means is the one in four people have lost their job. Uh, or been furloughed or not getting the same income, have reached out for a six to 12 month forbearance program. When they come out of that, their mortgage is gonna be increased by the amount of principal and interest that was deferred. So you could see someone with an 80 to 90% LTV loan go pretty high. We could still see what we hated in 2009, which is uh, an uptick in home foreclosure. So we really got to watch that. So um, housing and housing land is more influenced in kind of the peripheral areas to major cities. On the more commercial uses, whether it's the ranch land, the feed lots, the uh, ir irrigated farmland, um, the annual uh, farmland that's growing maybe wheat and type stuff, the we have a couple of clues here. 
One is from NACREF. So NACREF is the uh, all the pension fund and institutional funds that have been heavily investing over the last decade in agricultural land and keeping it booming. Um, and the price is going up uh, two, three, 4% a year. And they just recorded their first quarter ever in which um, their first quarter ever in which uh, the total return on agricultural land uh, declined. So that's not a good sign. In addition, NACRI's overall index for commercial real estate health, it also declined for the first time since 2009. So on the agricultural front, that was the first decline in 18 years, the first quarterly decline. So what it's really telling us is the the whole process, the whole supply chain process of from growing the food in the in the um, uh, farm products to harvesting them to getting them to the market, it's all disrupted. Uh, the rail networks are disrupted. The trucking networks are disrupted. They can't stop it truck stops and and go to the restroom and, and go through a drive-through. We don't have those. We don't have drive-through service at truck stops. Um, you know, the, the rest areas on the interstates were closed. And when they get to a plant or a distribution center, a place to unload the agricultural or meat products, um, they can't even get out of their trucks. So it's, it's badly broken. And then we've seen a bigger outbreak of the virus in these type places. So you look at Tyson Foods as an example in the processing and the meat plants, They've had a bigger outbreak, but in those facilities that are more automated and not dealing with meat products, say like a maker of Frito-Lay chips by Pepsi, Pepsi really at least revealed in its earnings that they're doing pretty well and they haven't had the outbreaks because their plants are more automated and they're making chips versus dealing with plant stuff. So recreational, holding in there very nicely. Uh, residential, um, we're, we're starting to see the early signs that it is going to deteriorate and public builders tell us they don't incline, they're not inclined to take down stuff. And on the commercial stuff, we're seeing whether it's NACREF or other institutional funds that they are, um, they're pulling back and they're seeing declines in the overall returns. You know, that's, that's great. One thing you said just triggered something in my mind and that was the amount of, um, mortgages, homeowners that are in forbearance. And I, I think the statistic you said, Casey, was 8%. Was that right? That is correct. It's a record number. We've never, ever seen it that high. How much, if you were just to guess and speculate, how much of that 8% would we see, you think, go into actual foreclosures, maybe 16, 18 months down the road? Is it half of that amount or a quarter of that amount? Or what do you think? So if my crystal ball were really clear today, and I knew what the unemployment rate would be, I'd give you a definitive answer, but I'll, I'll give you what my gut is. So I would say right now, most of that 8% are the are the 22% unemployed. Uh, the person that's still had their job, able to do Zoom, you know, work remote like me, we're, we're able to work through this. But that frontline worker, whether they're in retail or their leisure, hospitality, travel, agriculture, um, you know, manufacturing, they're all very, very badly hurt. And most of those entities also tend to have a higher loan to value ratio in their mortgages. So they're not going to be the ones that have less than 80% LTV. They're going to be more like the populations that this 90% or more, they got to pay a mortgage insurance premium. You take a year off somebody that's got a 90% loan to value mortgage and you take a year where they miss their payments and you've got to add that onto the back of their mortgage and reassess the LTV, and you're approaching 100% LTV. You're approaching that point where they, the homeowner really has to wonder, 
Am I better off staying in the house and fighting for it? Or do I just let it go into foreclosure? It's a really tough question. But I think, you know, the, the population set that's more, most impacted that is taking forbearance, I'd say a very high percent of that is the ones that are at risk, that they're going to end up with a 95 or 100% LTV after the loan forbearance program. Very at risk. Well, thanks for sharing that. You know, I know it should be nice to have that crystal ball. So I appreciate you, you know, throwing <laughs> out your speculation there. You, you've got your hands involved in a whole lot of stuff, Casey. I know that you're you know, very heavily involved in the economics across the country. And I'm just, you know, curious, what else do you have on your radar that our listeners should be digesting as well? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. So I'll tell you, you know, I've become a, a increasing student of history and events like this because you try to look back if there was anything similar. Probably the most similar thing we had was, you know, the outbreak of polio uh, at the uh, onset of, of uh, and during World War One. 1916 and uh, not being solved with a vaccine until 1955. So uh, we went through a lot of economic stress and we had something that we couldn't control, but we, we didn't shut down the economy. So one of the things I picked up on is I found Winston Churchill was a great source of, of tremendous quotes and perspectives. <laughs> um, one of them I'll paraphrase is uh, at a eulogy in 1940, he said, look, it, it's, it's a good thing God did not give human beings the ability to foretell the future of unfolding events because we just couldn't handle knowing the outcome. Um, so I thought that was pretty insightful. So he said, quit trying to forecast it. So that keeps me humble. But the other one I really looked that's helped given me kind of my, my true north uh, direction compass is he stated, you know, a number of years later, well into World War II and working with the U.S. in um, World War II as an ally, and he said, look, it, I'm, I'm through listening to what people say. Um, they, they just don't do what they say. I watch behavior because behavior doesn't lie. So what's the behavior? I look at things like corporate earnings. When companies have to file under penalty of perjury and going to jail, SEC statements that tell you what they're seeing, what they're doing and how they're acting. To me, that's more revealing. I look at transportation metrics because the transportation metrics touch all aspects of our economy and tell me what's working, what's not working. I'll give you two of my favorite. So one not so much related to agriculture and one very much related. So this is me for your, re or your listeners, the one metric I would say that will follow, that will tell you more than anything else, more than a jobs report, more than GDP, more than land prices, how we're doing, what speed we're coming out of this, at what trajectory are we getting there to the other side? And that is the TSA passenger count uh, metric. So TSA keeps a count every day of how many passengers are flying through our airports. And going into March, we had been averaging over 2.3 million passengers a day flying through our airports. Um, that collapsed in April to about 80,000, less than 100,000. It has started to rebound since we've been opening the states in the last 10 days, up to about a quarter million. But 250,000 passengers a day versus 2.3 is not getting us there. We need to see that number get back to a million and a half by the, late this summer or this fall in order for me to believe we're really getting anywhere with employment and industry and then the economic recovery. So that's one I would watch as an overall metric. It's easy to find, it makes sense, it connects the dots. The second one, I love the American Association of Railroads and their real-time indicators report that they produce monthly because as go what's happening on the rail is what happens in GDP. It's perfectly correlated. They never miss it. 
And the, and the last couple of reports, the, the March and April reports have told us, these are the worst numbers that we've seen in rail traffic overall. And they break down whether that's energy and coal, agriculture, automobiles, or, um, or containers like from the ships uh, moving inland. So it's very, very instructive information. The intermodal is worst ever. Um, and part of the problem that the ag folks had was that petroleum, as we were booming, more petroleum cars were being put on the rail and making it difficult for ag to be moved. So they were having to revert to trucking, more expensive. Um, now that's freeing up, is energy is almost free. But I would monitor the um, American Association Railroads real-time indicators. They will tell us when we see uh, activity reestablishing in our supply chains and going back to the port, whether the um, NAFTA II agreement is actually helping us. And, and I think that's one of the most optimistic elements to be looking for if I'm in the commercial um, ranch and ag land industry is that I believe we're going to see more of a north-south supply chain emerge from our historic west coast to east coast um, for a couple reasons. A lot of our, um, not only our manufacturing, but our food supply uh, and dependence on processed items is going to be coming back into North America. May not all come into the United States because we have this thing called the EPA <laughs> that makes it difficult to do anything, including if you're if your uh, truck picking up the grain spills a little bit of gas and you got a major EPA issue. Um, but Mexico doesn't have that problem. So I think we're going to see a lot of this manufacturing and, and supply chain move back from Asia into Mexico and flow into the U.S. So if you're in proximity to the Mexico border like Texas, if you're aligned with Kansas City Southern Rail that goes all the way into Mexico, it's the only class one rail, or you're anywhere where you connect to BNSF, which is the East West or West East Coast Rail, or on the East Coast, CSX, Norfolk Southern, th those are really gonna benefit. So the rail traffic numbers and the supply um, transportation metrics can tell us a lot about what's going on. Casey, you, you made a comment about um, behavior. And one thing that I'm wondering is just how we're gonna see tourism behavior change. A lot of our listeners are specializing in selling recreational land, which we talked about a while ago, in tourist areas. And they depend on those enplanements coming in, bringing those tourists. I guess my question is, how do you see the behavior changing, you know, when tourists can't get into, you know, the, the Rocky Mountains and go whitewater rafting or, you know, get into the Appalachian Mountains and go hiking? Um, how do you see that tourism behavior changing and possibly affecting those land markets? So another, well, you got some good questions today, tough ones. So I'm going to give you the really bad news, and then I'm going to tell you where I think the mitigation can occur. What concerns me for these secondary and tertiary markets that are tied to destination, uh, whether it's recreational or tourism, is that this fall, the airlines have already told us in their first quarter earnings that they're inclined not to go through the government's um, bailout program they don't want to surrender ownership of their airlines or any more control. And through bankruptcy, they're actually in better shape because they can discharge contracts, contracts like plane orders, contracts like uh, at the airports, the number of gates, uh, labor contracts. But here's what concerns me more. They'll also be allowed to cut route structures. And the airlines, the bigger ones, are going to be more inclined to cut those routes that are to less uh, traveled or less where the planes are less full going to recreation or destination areas that maybe could just as easily be accessed you know by car 
And so I think we need to really watch. If you're in a secondary or tertiary market, you need to be engaged with your local and state political leaders to make sure that this is on their radar because it will hit us fast and furious about September, October, when the airlines start to go through bankruptcy and, and use bankruptcy as a means to get themselves realigned. So here's the mitigation. The passenger and the general public is telling us already they're not really thrilled to get back on an airplane. We don't have vaccines, we don't have testing, um, and we don't have what they're doing in Europe, which is called an immunity passport, which is, I think, what can get us eventually out of here. And so they're more inclined to pack the family in the car and, and do a road trip. And even if it's five or six hours, uh, the family is more comfortable doing that. It's more cost effective. And those destinations, they generally can space out um, and, and, and not be so congested like in a hotel or a crowded beach. So I actually think those that have um, locations that were, you know, if you looked at a five, five mile radius ring and what major cities you can draw from, if you've got good road networks, if you, um, you know, can do the Airbnb, the, the traveling public is already saying, I'd rather do an Airbnb than a hotel. I have more confidence there. So I think there can be some mitigation, but it's gonna take really um, rolling your sleeves up and figuring out how those technologies work, how you market to them, and, and think more road travel than airline travel, because I don't think we're getting on crowded airplanes anytime soon. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, that's some really, really good input. And I'm we're already seeing that where I'm at in Colorado and New Mexico, uh, that very thing's happening with those people that if there's good access they can drive to, then uh, they're getting excited and, and buying those recreational properties. Um, I'd like to remind our RLI members that they can visit the RLI's Land Expertise Hub, the RLI blog, or RLI's COVID-19 resource page to learn more about the economic impacts of COVID-19 and the effect that we're expecting it to see on the land market. Uh, Casey, do you have anything else here for us as we wrap up? Yeah, and I say, you know, I've, I've tried to tell people as I've gone through this, I've, I've tried to maintain two philosophies and attitudes. So the first is look up and forward, because if your head's down and you're not looking up and forward, as you know, being out in the West in Colorado, if you want to get out of a cave, you got to look up and forward to find the exit and the light at the end of the tunnel. So look up and forward. It's the only way you're going to find light at the end of the tunnel. The second is this situation is very fluid. Look at how quickly we can have the news on one day saying, we think we have Madero uh, with a vaccine. And the next day someone says, no, their trials aren't right and it's not coming. So it's very fluid. So I encourage everybody to do daily what if thinking. So what if my air travel gets restructured and I don't have air travel to my region and I'm, try and I'm dependent on tourism and recreation activities? How do I, how do I pivot to that? Um, you know, what if the supply chain moves more north, south than west, east? What are my connection points? Do I pivot and use more Kansas City Southern rail linkage versus BNSF? What are my rail networks that I tie into? So look up and forward. It's the only way to find light at the end of the tunnel. Do daily what if thinking. And the last thing I'd say, which I would give tip my hat to uh, the National Association of Realtors, RLI and CCIM, is in anything we do as we're going through here, try to engage in greatest generation-like behavior. Our parents and grandparents endured a lot, uh, Great Depression, World Wars, the polio outbreak, they dealt with it all and they kept a good attitude and had very good behavior. 
Um, I think the, the realtors, RLI, CCM, our industry organizations have engaged in tremendous greatest generation behavior. They've been there for our industry. They've been at the front line on fighting issues, whether it was extending 1031 exchange services, getting all of us classified as essential services and essential workers. So I think uh, this is one time where I would say we're getting our money's worth out of our dues for our industry associations. And I'm very grateful we had the organizations this time around to help us. That's well said. Well, Casey, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights on the land market. Listeners, please make sure to check out the RLI blog and the COVID-19 resource page on rliland.com for more information on this topic. Until our next episode, everyone stay safe and stay healthy.